0: This is your profanity warning. You're warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> 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 oh, oh.
0: étudiants et les étudiantes, you have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You, formerly known as 21 Jump Scare. I'm Bradford Lorick,
2: And I'm Eric Winnick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several
0: points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this... Quote unquote, human will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet.
2: As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, our mentor of madness, our professor of perfidy, you.
0: Which would make you our freshman of fright.
2: Joining us today to discuss the delightful 2007 Christmas romp, Inside is a very special guest, all the way from the fifth most populous province in Canada, Manitoba, our new friend, Kimberly Elizabeth.
0: Kimberly is the co-founder, editor, and host of Nightmare on Film Street, a horror outlet and top film review podcast. She's a Rotten Tomatoes certified film critic, spooky screenwriter, and sometimes director. Uh, as mentioned, her home base is in Manitoba, but she spends much of her time on the road exploring across North America in her motorhome.
2: Thanks for joining us, Kim. How are you doing, and what are you up to these days?
1: Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, apart from watching this surely uh, delightful film, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I've just been, you know, holing up for the winter. Uh, October is pretty crazy time for us horror fans, so... Uh, I'm chilling for a bit and just you know catching up on movies from 2022 and uh, yeah everything I haven't seen yet this year.
2: Uh, Kim, now we know you have a new-ish project out there, Symphony, a clubhouse horror anthology. Listeners will, of course, recall we spoke to another Symphony director, Jason Regusta, earlier this season about the film Session Nine. Would you mind telling us about it and about your wonderful segment, the aptly titled "Do Us Part."
1: Yeah, so Symphony, um, I'm sure you guys have heard from the conversation with Jason, uh, is a horror anthology that was born on the social media app Clubhouse during the height of the pandemic. So, I- Great when everybody was locked down, Um, Clubhouse came about. And if you're not familiar with it, it's an audio app, very similar to you know Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But what's unique about Clubhouse is that it's all voice conversations, and um, you enter a room and you chat with a bunch of strangers. And for a few uh, weeks, I think we we kind of made this natural group of horror fans, and we were all talking and chatting, and you know just kind of keeping ourselves busy busy while everything was closed down. And um, Sebastian, our head producer at Screen Anthology, pitched, you know, why don't we do a horror anthology? Why don't we all film some shorts and, and put them together and make a feature film? And you know, having been a screenwriter for for five years or so, a lot of times you hear things like this. You hear really um, broad promises, and they never really pan out. And so you kind of take it with a grain of salt, but every step of the way we just got green light after green light after green light. And like we, we worked on scripts and they liked the scripts and we did script notes and we got budgets for our films and we set shoot dates for our films and then we shot our films and, um, it, it happened and it's been pretty magical. Um, my segment is this kind of quirky little, um, romantic horror comedy right in the <laughs> middle of the film <laughs> yes. it's 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 very i think atypical and i don't know if it would have worked if it wasn't in an anthology with a bunch of other um really scary horror films and i i really leaned into uh the fringes of what horror could be it's about a couple. Um, who are separated, um, but you soon discover they're separated not by choice, but because one of them is dead.
0: So, Kim, uh, the first thing, the first legit thing we have to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre, and do you have a favorite horror film? I would imagine that as an internationally famous horror podcaster, you've got a few opinions on the subject.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm my. you cut me and I bleed horror. Um... I've always been into spooky things and scary things and um, anything I could get my hands on, anything I could sneak past my parents. I was watching, you know, 1990 It uh, and terrifying myself with with Tim Curry's Pennywise before I could spell my own name. Uh, mm. it, it's it. Uh, it's something that I've just always grown up with, you know, where you don't remember how you got into something because it's just always been part of your life. Um, horror has been that for me. Uh, my absolute favorite horror film is Poltergeist. It, it's just a an insane haunting that shows you all of the facets of what being haunted would like. There's the scary elements, but it also captures like the wonder and the awe of it. There's... Um, so so often are haunted house films so fast that characters will come in, they'll realize they're being haunted, and there's no time to like explore the realization that something fantastical is happening. They're experiencing something supernatural. You're just thrown into terror immediately, and your characters have no no time to live in what they're experiencing. And I think Poltergeist nails that. You get moments where your, your characters are actually living with this new world like their eyes have been opened they have a they have a new understanding of what the world's potential is and we get to like hover there for a little bit which i think is just marvelous
0: Okay, so uh, let's kick this off by discussing what this film is about. Mr. Winnick, will you give us a, a bloated, bloviating recap of the entire film, moment by moment?
2: Four months after surviving a horrific car crash that killed her husband, pregnant Sarah is alone and depressed on Christmas Eve, and due to have her baby the next day. Violent protests are happening in the streets, But she doesn't want to be with anyone, despite her mother and boss Jean-Pierre offering her opportunities to come to parties or keep her company. So Sarah settles in for night of knitting when suddenly a knock on the door. Who is it? The woman behind the door just wants to use a phone, but she also knows Sarah's name. And what begins as an indoor-outdoor game of cat and mouse turns into a cascading symphony of violence with nothing less than the fate of Sarah's baby, hanging in the balance.
0: Merveilleux, Mr. Winnick. All right, um, now I'm going to talk about who made this film. Uh, so this film is written and directed by the team of Julien Maury and Alexandre Bustillo. The two would go on to work together on the films Livid, Among the Living, Candisha, and The Deep House.
2: The film features Alison Paradis as Sarah, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because she is the sister of Vanessa Paradis, ex-wife of Johnny Depp, and the aunt of actress Lily Rose Depp.
0: It also stars the literally incandescent Beatrice Dahl as the aptly named The Woman. And in supporting <laughs> roles, uh, François-Régis Marchasson and Nathalie Roussel.
2: As the landlady. No, as actually as Sarah's mom.
0: So now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about the numbers and whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought, and then we make fun of the critics.
2: (laughs) This film was released in France on June 13th, 2007, and premiered in the US at Screamfest on October 17th, 2007. Its budget was 2.4 million euros, which is about 3.2 million euros today. Uh, Its worldwide gross was a disappointing $792,000. But it's not about the money, right, guys? It's about the art.
0: (laughs) The film currently holds a a fresh-as-a-daisy 83% on the Rotten Tomatoes.
2: Scott Tobias of the AV Club stated... Among the cadre of French extreme horror filmmakers, there seems to be an informal contest over who can push the boundaries of good taste further into the horizon. Martyrs has won that contest, now and perhaps forever, but Inside hits a nerve, too, by threatening mother and child at their most vulnerable state. It's all too effective.
0: Nathan Lee, reporting for The Village Voice, said... Quote, this nasty number from France stars Beatrice Dahl as an enigmatic psychopath who terrorizes a pregnant woman in the most repellent, uncompromising, they are so not releasing this fucked up shit uncut in America fashion. End quote.
2: This film was conspicuously absent at the 2008 Oscars, but it did pick up three nominations for the only prizes that matter, the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, one for Beatrice Dahl, who deservedly won for Best Supporting Actress, and nominations for Alison Paradis as Best Actress and Jacques-Olivier Malon for Best Makeup.
0: And finally, it should be noted that this film was handed the primo spot of number six in Rolling Stone's list of the 101 scariest movies of all time.
2: And now's our opportunity to ask the professor the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is you, Professor Lorick. So before we get started, I just want to confirm, Kim, you had seen this film before we contacted you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I saw it um, around when it came out.
2: Okay, so now back to you, Professor. Tell us, why on earth did you make us watch this thing? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, uh, I think it's sort of visceral impact can't be overstated. Um, When this film came out, um, you know, I when I lived in Brooklyn, there was a great uh, movie rental place around the corner from me called Photo Play, which had an incredibly well curated selection of everything including horror films. Um, This was a new release. I just hosted a brunch at my apartment for a bunch of my Vassar friends, uh, and we decided to take a walk, pick out some scary movies, and put them on. Um, And this film repulsed literally everyone who saw it. Um, And, I mean, from the opening credits, which, you know, roll over a wash of blood and broken glass, which is basically a a visual metaphor for what we're about to experience, Um, you know, it's this crazy home invasion thriller. It's a mystery. It's an unflinchingly brutal, visceral gore fest that just builds and builds and builds and kind of compounds itself until the very end. And it's a Christmas movie. I think it has great sound design. I think it has great music. I think the editing is great. It has great cinematography and fantastic and hallucinatory use of lighting. Um, I'm also really intrigued by its woman versus woman premise. And I think this film is grisly in the truest sense. It's like motherhood anxiety amped up to 11. And it is just from start to finish, a gory metaphor with complex characters who are broken and complicated people. I, I just think, you know, it it kind of knocks it out of the park on almost every level.
2: And and to both of you, what is your history with Baury and Bustillo? I, I have not seen any of their other films. Uh had you seen Livid Among the Living, Candisha or The Deep House? We'll start with Kim.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's actually crazy that this is their first feature film, just for how insanely visceral it is and like the cinematography and how well it's shot um but this film really turned me on to them as directors and i've purposely sought out their other projects as they've come out they did they also did um the leatherface remake well it's not really a remake it's more of a like a prequel character study of leatherface uh levide is fantastic if you can find it it's really hard to find um but beatrice dall also plays in that film. And if you thought she was scary in this, she is even more terrifying in livid. You and, ain't seen um, nothing
0: yet, right?
1: Yes. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs>
2: so I, I have, in fact, mispronounced the name of the
0: film. It's no, 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 no. It, it's, it's livid in English, livid in French. Oh, got
2: it. Thank you.
1: Uh, yeah, but it's, it's really hard to find. I need to get myself a DVD copy of it because I haven't seen it since it came out. But I remember it being terrifying it's a haunted house film so it's not quite what you expect from the french extremist side but it's they they're just masters um something they did recently that just came out i think you mentioned was the deep house i haven't heard a lot of people talk about that one but it's uh again another insane premise haunted house but at the bottom of the sea and it's with divers and ghosts and something territory that hasn't really been explored before and i also really love that
0: yeah, I'm going to agree with you there, Kim. I think the deep house is sort of a new level of of sort of production value and aesthetic realization for that for that team, and it's uh, unusual and and fabulous to look at. Um, I have not seen uh, among the living or Candisha, but I do think that Levid is stunning. Um, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a fantastic experience until maybe the very end when there's some perhaps questionable CGI but (laughs) uh, I I think both of those films are excellent and I would uh, not hesitate to recommend both of them to you Eric (laughs) oh merd that sounds like the fire drill Everyone, please leave the building single file. Do not walk, do not run, and uh, should you choose to listen further, if you have not seen the film, you have been warned. We are about to launch into Boku Spoileroo. All right.
2: Now that we've managed to lie down and get a little sleep this lovely Christmas Eve, let's head directly to Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments: on a roll, i.e., what worked, and detention, i.e., what didn't work.
0: But before we get into it, I'm going to ask you both, um, Mr. Winnick. I know this was your first time seeing Inside, and Ms. Elizabeth, I know you'd seen it before. So just to establish where we are on the playing field, basic yes or no response: Did you like this film, Kim? Yes. Eric? A qualified yes. <laughs> I think I know why you're qualifying your yes. But um, let's get into it. On a roll first, we're going to do this round robin style. We'll each name the scene or scenes or moments or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we will hand out the dreaded detention slips. Kim, what is your first nomination for the honor roll?
1: One of my absolute favorite moments of the film comes pretty early on after we're discovering that the guest at the door is not a friend and likely a foe. And it's when Beatrice is at the window and um, our mom-to-be is inside and you can barely see the assailant outside because it's so dark and the lighting on her face is just so chilling and when the 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 character sarah she lifts up her camera she's a photographer and she begins snapping shots of the window uh we pull out we're outside looking in and the the lighting of the camera flashing in the darkness is just gorgeous and that's maybe my favorite moment of the film overall (laughs)
0: Uh, Kim, I got to say, that was literally the first thing I was about to say. And I think <laughs> I think what is so great about that moment is when the camera does pull back and you're looking at Beatrice Dahl from behind. It's almost impossible to tell whether she's inside the house or outside the house at that point. And it is so chilling. So I, I fully endorse that honor roll nomination. So... Uh, My first honor roll nomination is there is a moment after the police have been called and they are leaving the house and Sarah is settling back down in the living room and we see the face of the woman Beatrice Dahl through a doorway inside the house and it's kind of receding into the shadows and we don't know I think at that point if it's real or if it's a fragment of a dream that Sarah's having. but it's subtle and chilling and slow sort of frame edge horror. And it's so well done.
2: Um, So my first nomination would be really the technical aspects of this film. Uh, Cinematography, special effects from the prosthetics to makeup. Everything here is just spot on. But um, I want to focus on the lensing, as they say. Uh, There are so many amazing images created, kind of like, you know, what do they call it in photography class? Uh, Cartier-Bresson, the decisive moment. It's like, yeah, yeah. so many of the shots in this film are iconic moments that are just captured. And you're sitting there, you're like, how did they get that? But one that comes to mind, that's an absolute knockout. And it's the scene in which Sarah is at home knitting. And to the left in another room, we can just make out the image of the woman standing there in the gloom and the murk. That may be one of the best shots in any horror film I've seen. Talk about frame analysis horror. It's like that moment in hereditary where you're focused on one thing and then something else begins to slowly reveal itself. Yeah. Uh,
0: so uh, let's go back to Kim.
1: Cool. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to go with a specific moment for this one. I think I'm just going to pick something overall. And... It's something that's unique, I think, to the film is that for a home invasion film, that when you settle into it, you think it's going to be a quiet film, um, woman versus woman, and just two characters fighting. Uh, One wants something and one doesn't want to give up something. But what's so unique about this film is that People keep coming to the house and people keep trying to infiltrate. And normally in a film, you you expect save, saviors. They're saviors. They're coming to help her. They're, she's getting out of it. If this wasn't a horror film, any circumstance where her mom shows up, her boss shows up, police show up, police show up again, more yeah. police come, there would be some levity. And this film never lets up. It never lets anybody get a chance to be a savior. and it's it sits in the pit of your stomach and you, you just go deeper and deeper as this woman she cannot um, she catch a just, break. Yeah, she she's unstoppable.
2: Yeah. and also, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I think that's almost what makes this sort of sort of feminist in its own way is that all of these people and mostly men come to save her. And they all get dispatched pretty quickly by the woman all of these saviors show up and yet the only one who can really save Sarah is Sarah herself
0: well I mean Sarah is kind of created as the the ultimate kind of vulnerable horror movie heroine right yeah she's she's broken in every conceivable way she's broken physically you know the the scars on her face from the accident still haven't completely healed. She's broken emotionally and psychologically. And then on top of that, she's pregnant. And on top of that, she's alone. And I I think it's an amazing transformation that she goes through, where she's sort of initially kind of seemingly disconnected from the pregnancy in those early hospital scenes. uh, But she comes to fight for the life of her child, she starts out wanting to be alone, not even wanting to see her mother, who's then taken away from her through the events of the film. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think that that there are so many kind of fascinating aspects to, to these two wildly different female characters.
2: It's interesting that you should say that the mother was taken away from her, given how she dies.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, she... Sarah kills her own mother, but (laughs) I I mean, it's, she doesn't intend to do it. No,
2: of course not. No, it's a total accident. Um, but it's, it's horrific all the same. And when you consider all the things she has to deal with in this film, processing the trauma of killing your own mother, it goes, it's pretty far down on the list when you think about it.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, uh, to, to Kim's point also, you know, I mean, I think that there's, um, there's this kind of repeated motif of broken glass that occurs throughout the whole film. Um, You know, we see broken windshields um, when the woman shows up at the house, she punches the window and it breaks. And, you know, I wonder if it's, if it's kind of this visual metaphor for fragility. And, you know, I, I also wonder if the film is actually kind of looking at, at that as a sort of overarching metaphor. And I would be curious to know what you both think.
1: That's a great point. I think it's also echoing the car crash, because as we go through the film, we kind of learn that this entire home invasion, this entire attempted kidnapping is fallout from that single accident. So it's almost like all of the glass in the film is debris from the first accident.
0: That's great. Yes. Also, Eric kind of touched on this when he was giving the synopsis, but the film is set against the backdrop of the 2005 French riots. Um, and that was like three weeks of hell in France in the fall of 2005. And it was principally involving um, young people from sort of economically disadvantaged areas. Um, many of them were sort of non-native, you know, French people, and... Um, And a lot of them were Muslim, which added a kind of religious component to the unrest. And I think that that kind of speaks to sort of social fragility and the idea of this sort of interloping other character. And so I I just wonder, you know, how far you guys think that metaphor kind of extends.
1: Setting something on Christmas where Christmas doesn't really play any part in the story is so oddly poetic and i think the fact that christmas being one of those universally seen happy times and joyful times and perfect times with family and having a woman who's questioning her current circumstances and maybe ignoring some of the things that are nagging at her because she has to and just pure violence on the television it's just beautiful irony i think
0: And I mean, I think there are a couple of other kinds of moments like that. Uh, You know, again, from the very beginning when she's with her OBGYN and the doctor tells her to enjoy her last night of peace and quiet before she's plunged into this like hellscape with Beatrice Dahl stalking her through (laughs) her house for, you know, the entire night.
1: I Um, thought you were going to say hellscape of motherhood.
2: Let us not forget also the nurse who basically sits down next to her and basically reveals the entire plot of the film. Yes. 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 There's foreshadowing in every way in this film.
0: Right. I mean, what what does the nurse say? It's like, it's like murder. It's her like labor. murder.
2: There's so much pain. It's, it's like her
0: labor was 13 hours long and the child was born dead.
2: Do you got a second honor roll for us, sir?
0: I think second only maybe to the production design is the costume design. I think the woman's costuming makes her look like a, you know, she looks like a bringer of death, you know? Um, but like make it fashion. She's got like black kid oh, yeah. gloves on. She's got a corset with a peplum in silhouette. She looks like Margaret Hamilton in the Wizard of Oz. You know, um, she, she's kind of created as this fairy tale witch almost. And when, when we see her, in the dark in Sarah's room with that enormous pair of scissors and the and like the bottle of alcohol you know it's it's like nightmarish
2: uh agreed uh can I follow up on that for my sure. second point yep. so so that leads into my second honorable mention uh which is the performances of the two leads uh what can i say they commit 100% to this stuff and i can imagine it must have taken a real toll as it must have for the actors in, in Martyrs, another French extremity film, and, and one that we covered last season. Uh, Paradis takes such a beating throughout this film. I mean, her hand gets stabbed to a wall. She's killed her own mother. She gets hit with a toaster. She gives herself a fucking tracheotomy. She crawls through gallons of blood. I mean, she's a real trooper. And as for Dahl, this is the second movie I've seen her in after Trouble Every Day, and I just have to wonder: does this woman gargle raw eggs on a daily basis? You you rarely see an actor, and and just know that this person's career is going to consist of bloodthirsty, blood sucking wraiths. I mean, you know, I mean, she is made for this kind of thing.
1: I totally have to agree with you on um, Beatrice. She is so enigmatic in this, and she doesn't even have to do anything but appear with those scissors in the scene oh. and you are utterly terrified. And it, yep. I just have to commend the casting of the film so much because again, like uh, how I followed um, Bastillo and Mori after this film, I also followed her and I've seen some of the other projects she's in. She's in something uh, that came out recently. If you are a fan of Gaspar Noe, he came out with a film called Lux Eterna. Yes. It's very psychedelic and uh, epilepsy warning if you have epilepsy, um, but she's in it and she's fantastic. And the same kind of eerie, enigmatic, almost cat-like character.
2: Yeah. I, I like to see her in a rom-com. I never saw Betty Blue, but maybe that's as close as she's ever come to doing a rom-com. But um, does she does she do uh, other kinds of films?
1: I you know honestly if if she does I haven't sought them out because purely in my mind she exists in a, in a nightmare zone <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, uh, okay Kim do you have a third honor roll nomination
1: I'm gonna go with something really specific and definitely uh definitely horror horror related so Eric I don't know if this is gonna be <laughs> one that Uh-oh. made your list but uh, a very specific. Uh, wound I will say that really affected me and it's not going to be the one you're thinking of is when the woman kills the boy that has tagged along with the final police officer that entire sequence is so heart-wrenching because uh, the police officer he's off his shift He's sitting in the car. He's talking to, I'm assuming his fiance, his girlfriend, his wife. He just wants to get home. He wants to book this kid who has been arrested for like fireworks or something, who's basically going to get a slap on the wrist or a ticket. And they hear gunshots go off. They go into the house and they are disposed of in the darkness, as many are in the house. Um, But the boy gets the scissors jammed in his forehead. And it's disgusting in the best way- <laughs> in the best ways.
2: It's uh, probably the quickest, fastest way to get a, f- a frontal lobotomy, isn't it, Bradford? Uh,
0: it might be. I mean, that- or, or, it-
2: or is it, do you have to go in through the eye socket? Or can you just jab some scissors into somebody's head?
0: Well, you know, I mean, it's the same place as in The Loved Ones, which we just discussed uh, very recently. Uh, right.
2: That's true. It is a it is a similar location that the drill the it's a drill in that one, right? And this is scissors. Yes. Which it's- which is interesting when you think about it because her aim is true. So um props to the woman. I mean she's been it seems like she's done this before. Back to technical effects for a second. Since I started watching horror films, I have seen some truly ghastly effects. But this film was a doozy. I mean, as we were just saying, people get stabbed in the darndest places. (laughs) And the choice of scissors as a murder weapon somehow makes it much worse. I'm not entirely sure why, but you can imagine the pain being somehow more excruciating if you're being cut slowly with a scissor as opposed to, you know, just the one-off stabbing. I mean, you sort of know what you're going to get from the opening credits, right? I mean, the the opening credits, which you alluded to, in which the text kind of bleeds on and off the screen, and it's all set against this backdrop of, you said uh, blood and broken glass. To me, it looked like blood and
0: guts. Well, to be be really accurate, um, the broken glass in the credits is... Overlaid. It's in white. It comes up over the blood in the background, but the text interacts with the broken glass on the screen. I, I like that effect a lot. I me thought that too. was,
2: I, I actually really, really like opening credits, um, creative opening credits, and I kind of miss them.
0: Oh, God, me too.
2: The, they sort of went away. Yeah. So, Bradford, uh, why don't you give us your third honor roll nomination? <sighs>
0: I, I'm honestly torn. I have I have sort of two moments that I kind of kind of made note of, but I think I, I have to just give it to that sort of final aria, I'll call it. You know, it's it's after the woman has given Sarah an impromptu caesarean section, um, and the screen kind of fades to black. And when we fade back in, we see the silhouette again of the woman walking slowly through Sarah's house. She's holding the baby. She sits in a rocking chair. And this is after her face has been burned in the kitchen. It's really and- like half
2: her head that's been burned. I mean, it's it's like there's there's not much hair left. There's yeah. not much face left. There may not be an ear. Sarah, I mean it's it's she's you know, half her head is pretty much scorched.
0: Yeah. And she sits down in the rocking chair and she looks like a a hag from a Goya painting, you know, and the camera then starts moving and it it really slowly and kind of lovingly pans up the stairs and you see like the husk of Sarah. You know, she's just absolutely decimated on the stairs. There's blood and viscera everywhere. And you see that wound in her abdomen. And it just looks so meaty. And the umbilical cord is trailing out. And and we kind of just like stop on her face for a moment. And then we cut back to the woman. And she's rocking the baby in the dark in the chair. And these are just like... It's one kind of stunning tableau after the other. It's underscored by this incredible music for strings, and then it's just end of film.
2: you forgot the moment when they ha- they're, they're hanging on um, Sarah's face and you you hear the baby's first cries. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing because you actually don't really know if the baby is alive until that point. and uh, that's pretty heartrending.
0: It is. Absolutely. I mean, it, it works on so many levels, you know, for, for the audience, it's, it's sort of visceral in a stomach churning way, but then also in a, in a heart rending way, you know, it, yeah. it has this incredible sort of emotional component. Detention after school, both of you,
2: you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me. You can take that language straight to detention.
0: Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just
1: perfect.
2: Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslevitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Kim is our guest. Why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention?
1: Oh, guys, this is going to be so hard. I really like this film. Uh, I've been thinking about it the whole time that we've been doing the compliments. I've been trying to think of um, counterpoints. And I, I think I've come up with one, but it's 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 a soft detention slip. Maybe it's like... Um, sharpening pencils or something, something light. Um, It's the moment when one of the characters, I believe it's, this is going to be the, like the counterbalance to my last good point is the lobotomy kind of comes back. Um, We have a character I'm I'm not sure if it's the police officer or if it's the young boy because it's so dark. Um, it's, but... I think
0: it's the police officer. He's I, I
2: do price. too. I was yeah. wondering, I was wondering about that because if it's he's a, sort of in a rugby shirt.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: right when Sarah thinks she's finally got the woman, you know, in in the corner on the ropes, she's she's finally ahead a little bit. The lights in the house go back on, and we know that the power had been cut. Uh, and we whirl around with the camera and there is almost like this monster character. And it's funny that I'm using this as a detention slip because I do kind of love it still. Um, but it's it's a moment of the film that's so surprising and it almost takes it to a fantastical realm. Yeah. Whereas I feel like the the rest of the film focuses on being so visceral. And I don't want to say realistic because the film isn't necessarily realistic, but it's, it's jarring in a way that kind of taps into that Lizard brain, you have where you see blood and guts, and you're like, Oh no, this isn't good. Um, but when you see a character running at you who's definitely had severe head trauma to the point where they're not recognizing, you know, what they're doing, who they are, who they're attacking, and is just this crazy brute force, it's almost like a zombie is running at her. Yeah. And it feels, oh my
2: God, it's yeah. so funny you should mention this, Kim. I wrote down exactly the same thing. I said, "Is this ca- is this character from *Dawn of the Dead*? You, you know what I you know what I think it is. I think he's blind. Okay, his eyes are black.
1: Yeah, his yeah. eyes are terrifying.
2: I think that he doesn't know what he's doing, and I think that he goes after the first person who comes into the room.
0: Well, mm-hmm. I think he assumes that Sarah is the woman. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right? Yeah, because like he he starts." beating the hell out of her with a billy club. And that's when like, that's when the woman comes to Sarah's aid sort of. Yeah. And, and she can and, like bayonets him in the armpit. With
2: the makeshift spear. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's a gnarly moment, but it, it feels, it feels like a different movie for a second. Um, I still really like it because seeing more of um, Bastillo and Maury's work, they, they always like to add a little fantastical element to their things that, I think everything they've done exists in another world, kind of like looking at their whole catalog. So it makes sense when you pull out a bit, but when you're just watching the film and that's your only frame of reference, it causes pause.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny that you brought that up. I actually took that out of my notes because I, I didn't understand it initially. And when I read a little bit more about this film, I was like, oh, okay. Okay. I see what that is now. And well, it did, but I, but I, I will say to Kim's, to Kim's point, it did feel fantastical to me for a minute. And I thought a zombie had walked into this film. Um, and I was very confused. Like what, what, what is happening? And, and then I realized, okay. So what, hmm.
0: what did you read about it that made you reconsider? Oh, or...
2: oh, oh, that the character is, is blind and brain damaged and goes after the first person who comes into okay. the room.
0: All right.
2: So my main points of comparison with this film were probably martyrs, irreversible, high tension, and I suppose Raw and Titan to some extent, uh, given that they're the only French extremity films that I've seen. And I have to say, my issue with this film is that, at least for me, there's just not enough of a story to back up what happens. Martyrs you feel for what the main character is going through because you know where she's been. You know why these people are doing this to her. I don't want to spoil it. And similarly, Irreversible, though you don't get the backstory first, you get it by the end of the film, and the cumulative effect is devastating. To me, this is a technically brilliant film, but not so much emotionally, mainly because... When we find out the woman's motivation, it's, for me, not really enough to explain how she's become this psychopath. And I thought that was a an issue for me because I was like, I, I understand that she was in this accident, but she had clearly become this witch, as you put it, Bradford. And I didn't see the how we got from point A to point B.
0: I don't know. I think I have to take umbrage with that a little bit, Mr. Winter. Take
2: Take some umbrage.
0: I I don't know what, you know, the woman's situation is. Sarah and her husband are in the accident together. We don't know about whether um, the woman is a single mother or, you know, she was choosing to have this child without a partner or whatever, but... At the end of the film, you kind of realize that the voiceover at the beginning, at the very beginning of the film, is in fact the woman talking to the fetus inside her. You know, that like nothing can take it away. And, you know, this is like seconds before a cataclysm that changes her life entirely. You know, we we certainly don't know the circumstances of the accident. We don't know who's fault it is necessarily because it's a very objective point of view when we see the two cars together but her life has been destroyed and sarah is part of that destruction and while sarah may have been told that there were you know that there were no survivors of the the wreck or whatever she says at the end I mean, it's still a incredibly psychologically devastating thing for the woman to have gone through.
2: Right. But the thing is, is that she becomes one of like the all time great horror supervillains. You know, I mean, she almost steps into another realm. And I understand this is a horrible, tragic thing that has happened to her. I completely get it. But she's almost one dimensional in this film. And uh, that bothered me.
1: I think that's a fair point. I'm in kind of the same camp as Bradford, though. I kind of love that she's just unhinged. I honestly think even with the the explanation that she was the other person in the car, I don't even need that because I think the character is so haunting and witchy and spooky and just terrifying in her own right. Like her silhouette is terrifying that I I'm... I'm signed on and I don't need an explanation. I love how just you can feel it in her eyes when you see her, just like the want and like the bloodlust for this baby. It's scary.
0: Kim, would you, I guess if you were remaking this movie, would you use the narrative justification that Maury and Bustillo use? I mean, would you have actually connected the woman to Sarah through the accident? Or would you have chosen to let it be a completely sort of random, senseless, um, like the stranger's idea of this story?
1: Uh, I love that. I think what I would have done and and something that I believed, I think the first time I saw it, instead of having her be the woman in the car, I would have had her be the, the nurse in the beginning. Interesting. Something about being around babies all all day and that this kind of... Maybe this was an idea that she'd always had. Maybe she can't have her own children and that's why she works around children. Um, But then this like kind of perfect circumstance of like a kidnapping that you almost might be able to get away with. This woman is she doesn't want her child seemingly. She's lost her husband, kind of like her will for motherhood. And... She's alone. She's going to be alone on Christmas the night before the baby's before she's going to be induced. So perhaps this nurse character takes it upon herself to live out her darkest fantasies.
0: Unusually, uh, even for the films that I am curating for this podcast, uh, I I have only one detention slip for inside. And it is uh, the CGI baby. Oh, it's so,
2: that's coming up next. Um, But please go ahead.
0: It's straight out of Ally McBeal territory. You know, I I feel like- (laughs) It's not that bad. You know, I mean, I just feel like it it diminishes the film when we see the baby. It's like
1: Mm -hmm.
0: something's happening outside and then the baby's making an angry face inside the womb. You know, Um, I, I just feel like it is unnecessary takes it down a notch and in fact at the very start when we were talking about this team's other films there is cgi in levide that kind of lets me down too um and it's like the reason i love the deep house as much as i do is that like it feels like an evolution for these guys. Like they're finally able to achieve the kinds of visuals that they want in a way that feels sophisticated. And I just feel like the baby is an unsophisticated CGI solution to a problem that doesn't exist.
2: Totally 100% agree. Um, I'll come back to this in a second. Uh, Kim, do you want to give your second detention slip?
1: Okay, so this one... This one's going to be purely personal preference, and I think it becomes, you know, I just I hit my limit in a moment with this film, and uh, not to say that it's bad, but just I physically had to look away, and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. Um, No, it's uh, the final showdown, I suppose, the cesarean section. Um, The moment that I could not watch was. I was fine with like the pulling out of the organs, with like the the opening of the stomach with the hands, and like seeing the blood in the viscera. But the 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 moment that I couldn't I couldn't take was when she slips the scissors into her belly button and starts mm. like cutting up her stomach to open it. I just the the scissors I I couldn't take it. It was too much for me. I mean, congratulations to the filmmakers. They they hit. They found my limit. They hit it. <laughs> they um they succeeded i suppose Um uh, there's some really great visuals in that scene so you're kind of forced to turn back as soon as you can um par- partially like i'll give you i'll give a compliment here the the waterfall of blood cascading down the stairs oh, is the
2: shining like the shining like moment where the yes yeah, the, wa- the elevators
1: open was- exactly <laughs> yeah it was gorgeous but it's right after a moment that's just sickening <laughs>
0: I mean, I think the the term I would use for a lot of this film is horrible beauty. But Kim, how how frequently does it happen that a film hits your threshold?
1: This is going to be a surprise, but I'm actually a pretty pretty big wuss. Um, <laughs> in that horror movies are really effective. Um, a lot of James Wan stuff. He's got a few scares that I I still can't watch to this day. I, I try my best, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a wuss. You can't get me in a haunted house because I just, I can't do the 4D horror. Uh, it's, it's too frightening. But I just like to say that I get more out of horror movies. I get more bang for my buck because I'm actually, uh, I, I'm actually scared of them.
0: All right, I'll take that. And I'm completely surprised to hear it. <laughs> Everybody has their limits, Bradford. Thank you,
2: thank you. All right, so in a film awash in great visuals, there was one aspect uh, that really bugged me. Um, And Bradford, you already told people what it was. I, I didn't need to keep coming back to the image of the baby in the womb, experiencing trauma. It's like, yeah, I get it. Bad things are happening on the outside, and that affects the baby, I think. But I didn't need those continual visual reminders. Side note, I have since learned in my brief reading about this film that those shots were not the director's choice. So I'm giving this, I'm These giving this survey. the producers. Oof. Huh. It was not a good move. I will send you the link to it, but uh, actually I think that one of the reviewers, uh, I think it was AV club alludes to the fact that um, the baby in the womb scenes totally don't work and uh, that the directors uh, did not actually want them in there. And they were, and um, still kind of, speak about how they hate that. Um, although, although when you think about it, the baby really is kind of the final human in this film.
1: That's there actually really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like that they, they do kind of survive a lot.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think the woman dies. I mean, I think there's enough evidence. There's a pool of blood under the chair that appears to be spreading. And um, so I, I think there's enough there for
0: us to believe that that she dies so who knows if the child survives for how long in an empty house with i mean at least right at least the cat isn't going to eat the baby because the woman (laughs) is. she kills the cat kills the cat
1: surely the the police will come once they don't hear from that squad car
0: yeah of course
2: that's there's comfort in that i suppose good
0: point yeah that cat if it had nine lives it spent them all.
2: You know, I loved that cat and I was really sad to see it go. But then again, I'm a, we lost our cat earlier this year. So I'm, I'm in the cat loving demographic. Kim, do you have a, a third detention slip?
1: I do not.
2: All right. So You're let me bring it, let you. me bring it home. I think this film tries, but doesn't really succeed in tying the events of the film to the 2005 events that are going on just beyond Sarah's doorstep. I mean, we get a hint of the riots that are happening, clearly stoked by years of unrest and discrimination and uh, economic disparity. And I, I feel like the directors really wanted you to know that. And not only because it's on the TV and everybody mentions it, but also because of the character of of that boy, the perp, who gets dragged into the house. And it reminded me a bit of the plot of Suspiria, the remake, where Guadagnino Tries really hard to connect the actions inside the dance academy to the social unrest that was going on at, in Germany at that right. time.
0: The Berlin Wall, um, yeah, yeah,
2: and it didn't. It just didn't quite succeed because I you're left wondering, okay, what's the relationship of the two things inside the house, outside the house, and um, maybe you guys have a, a theory on that, but to me, it was it was not so clear. It almost it felt a little bit like uh, window dressing.
1: Uh, I I think that's a really great point. I didn't consider that. And and now saying it, um, I think it's a really great comparison of Suspiria, where you have kind of the inside, outside, and um, both stories feel like they're independent of one another. But filmmakers, they use metaphors.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, I I think I sort of hit on this a little bit earlier, but I I do think that there is something about um, the fragility of social order. You're, you're not supposed to have somebody come to your house and cut your baby out. You're not supposed to be um, oppressed because of your religious differences. I think they're setting up these two kinds of metaphors, but they're both addressing um, what happens when a, a sort of understood social contract is broken. And maybe it's not particularly successful um, from the vantage point of, it's 2022 and this is about 2005. Um, maybe it's that we're not French and we don't know what, you know, we, we, we don't understand it uh, because we're foreign to the idea of what those riots were like. Maybe it's as simple as these guys got together to write the screenplay at the time that that was happening and it was their background. So it's the background of the film. I don't know.
2: Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get that. Um, I think that just if you're going to include an element like that in a film like this, to me, I just needed one more little connector. You know what I mean? Just to kind of make it feel like it was part of the of the story. As, as Kim put it, it did feel like a little bit of a separate element. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on? Yes. All right. Before we bring it home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Kim, growing up, did you have a favorite recess snack, assuming they have recess up there in Canada?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So I don't know if this was in America, but... um we had this thing called sodalicious they've suspended making them they don't make them anymore otherwise oh. i would still eat them but they're fruit snacks shaped like sodas and flavored like sodas so there were like, like little
2: like soda bottles
1: yeah like there were little root beers there were little Coca colas oh. there was little grapes like grape soda great orange soda and they were right you know covered in sugar and tasted like yeah. sugar and were sugar and Uh, We got to eat them at 10 (laughs) a.m.
2: Wow, that's incredible. Although you can buy, you know, Haribo that makes the gummy bears. You can buy gummy soda bottles that taste like cola.
1: Yeah, so those are like, they're a close substitute, but they were like more of a fruit snack. It's hard to describe. They were smaller and they had that like, like not a jujube, but a fruit snack.
0: (laughs) Okay, now that we know about So Delicious... Let's take a break and come back for the superlatives.
1: As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school.
0: And the fact that you hang with D and I well speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular Ian. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this
1: your first time
2: out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm
0: very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool.
1: They're people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow.
2: Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for most disturbing scene. And of course, how do you choose in a film like this? But uh, Gaspar Noe, of course, the... uh, auteur behind such films as uh, Irreversible, Enter the Void, Love 3D, Lux Eterna, Climax, and many other delights. So, Bradford Lork, would you like to, to start us off with this award? I
0: guess so. Um, I think I am going to give my Gaspar Noe Award to, to the scene in which the cop is effectively decapitated by a gun in the bathroom, splattering Sarah with his brains.
2: It's pretty disturbing.
0: How do you choose your favorite kid? you know I mean this is just uh, this film is is one thing on top of another thing on top of another yes. thing and yeah it's it's tough. I agree. I
2: agree. this may be the hardest award we've had to give out so far this season. Um, let's let's uh, throw it over to Kim. Kim, do you have a Gaspar Noe award?
1: Yeah, you know what? It's it's kind of funny because uh I'm gonna give the award to the same thing I gave one of my detention slips to. Uh that Ooh. gotta go with the with the C section. Uh the, the scissors C section really made me squirm. So award award against.
2: That's interesting. I, I have to say, you know, there's been some back and forth this season about what is the meaning of disturbing versus Baroque, which is coming up in the Ken Russell Award. Before I hand this out, I want to clarify something that's been nagging me, uh, and that is the meaning of Baroque. So I went to the best source on the planet, of course, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which defines Baroque thusly, grandeur, sensuous richness, drama, dynamism, movement, tension, and emotional exuberance. So back to this award. For me it's the scene in the kitchen where Sarah can't breathe and performs a little self surgery to open her windpipe. That was a tough watch for me.
0: I mean also not for nothing but there's a profile shot of her right after and there's a oh, little yeah. gout of blood.
2: This film is all about the arterial spray. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to shuffle these around a little bit let's go to the michael myers award for character that most deserved to die and does um kim why don't you tell our audience who is michael myers
1: in general is that oh is it the michael myers award this is the michael myers
2: (laughs) award yeah we, we usually like to tell the audience who may not know who michael myers is and i figured you're someone who who might know
1: okay um well, if you're not familiar with the little slasher classic Halloween from 1978, <laughs> uh, it's got this um, I, maybe maybe iconic, probably iconic killer sure. who stalks babysitters. Um, he doesn't run. He never needs to run. Uh, yep. And he seemingly doesn't die. So uh, that's right. Michael Myers. He's He likes a knife and he... Is always out for revenge, even even if um, the <laughs> characters in the later installments have less and less to do with uh, his original motivation.
2: Very good. That's that was well put, um, Kim. Uh, so this is the Michael Myers War for character that most deserved to die and does. Um, why don't you start us off after that great explanation?
1: Yeah, I think this one it's it's a lot simpler because um, you have such a. A, a, an obvious foe. Uh, I'm going to go with the woman because she is ruthless and pretty unstoppable. So, if if I had the power to intervene with with such an award, uh, it would go to her.
2: <laughs> I would agree; it's the most obvious choice all season. Bradford,
0: uh, I'm going to have to, you know, break with uh, the two of you and say Sarah's mother's a real busybody.
2: Oh, uh, I knew so you were guys, gonna do this. No, I'm, I just, knew...
0: I'm totally lying. I think it's it's a sweep for the woman here, guys.
2: No surprise there, I suppose. Um so this takes us to the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live, but sadly does not. Um this is named for Sigourney Weaver's character in the alien cinematic universe. Bradford, start us off. Ellen Ripley. <sighs>
0: uh hmm. Yeah, I guess it's Sarah. it's Sarah. absolutely Sarah. Though I think Sarah's husband is also probably a pretty great guy. And I do like the scene in which uh, he kind of reappears to her, that little magical moment where his arms come out from between hers and yada yada. But I'm going to give it to Sarah.
2: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. It's got to be Sarah. I mean, talk about a lady that's got some fight in her. She is like the French Ellen Ripley when you think about it. If If Alien were set in a house in the xenomorph was Beatrice Dahl.
1: I think for mine, I'm going to deviate. I'm going to go with the cat. Uh, the oh. cat award. <laughs> and I think that's fitting for it being an alien-related Yeah, award. Jonesy. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and I think the cat, because if everything kind of fell apart and there's kind of two two breaks in the story where it could go it could fork one way or it could fork the other either sarah lives and she gets to live happily ever after with her baby and her cat or it forks the other way and the woman wins and we've already co- we've been hinting at her being witchy in in her silhouette and um her behavior so what witch does not need a familiar uh, i wish she had not have killed the cat
2: <laughs> that is so smart you know um that is our first animal uh, nomination, I believe, maybe ever, Bradford. We had an inanimate object, which was mentioned, <laughs> um, uh, a harpsichord. But uh, this is this is our first animal, I believe. I
0: fully applaud that choice.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm
1: honored. I'm honored great. to be the first animal nominee. <laughs> it's,
2: a gr- it's a great choice. Which brings us to our Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. Named for Ken Russell, the auteur who... Uh, was most responsible for the film, the lair of the white worm and a, a few others
0: like *Salome's last dance or the devils
2: or let's swing back to you, Bradford. What to start us off with this one?
0: I am going to give the Ken Russell award to the flamethrower in the kitchen.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, I think it was Sarah with a flamethrower in the kitchen.
0: Yes. Sarah with a flamethrower in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, 100%. I, I love the moment. I love the results. I love the shrieking when Beatrice Dahl is on, on fuego. I think <laughs> it is the most Baroque screen moment in this film. And based on how this film compares to essentially every other horror movie we've talked about, it could be the most, most Baroque screen moment of both seasons of our podcast.
2: True. And actually, you know, when you think about it, given... Uh, what she looks like for most of this film, you could refer to Sarah as Miss Scarlet.
0: Well stated, Mr. Winnick.
2: If we're going to extend the clue metaphor a little bit further... Uh, Kim.
1: Um, I'm going to try to do a scene that we haven't yet talked about, which is, which is hard because there are, there are a lot of moments I would have, I would love to choose, but I'm going to go with, um, one from the killer's perspective. Uh, the moment when Sarah's hand gets pinned to the wall with the scissors, uh, she's just broken through the door and she's, she's trying to get unlocked from the bathroom because she knows that there's, there's help outside. The police Mm -hmm. have come Mm -hmm. and, uh, the woman impales her to the wall, and she mm. really cannot get out. <laughs>
2: that is so unfortunate and so intense. I'm so predictable. I'd ha- to me, it's the scene on the stairs at the end, where the woman opens Sarah up with the scissors. That yeah. scene is like a, an aria of of pain and 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 grief and suffering. And uh, so, let's go to our final award. Which uh, award would may- that
0: be, Mr. Winnick?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked, Bradford, because this is the award called the Brad Dorif Award for the character who who could have been played, maybe should have been played, by Brad Dorif, actor most associated, of course, with the role of James Veneman, the Gemini Killer in uh, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist III, but also known to fans of the horror as the voice of Chucky and, and some other films, of course. Okay, so it's for me, the Brad Dorf Award goes to the woman in the scenes, in the hallway, when the film sort of starts glitching. And she's sort of experiencing this trauma and shaking her head and she's twitching uh, and she's trying to light a cigarette. I mean, Dorif in a black corset and floor-length black dress. uh, I mean, (laughs) inject that right into my veins.
0: I totally see that. And I'm really glad you brought up that moment because I love that the 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 way that the editing and the sound yeah. design and sound editing and music all sort of collide to to really kind of paint a picture of the internal life of that character i think that's a great moment i'm glad we touched on that before we conclude
1: I'm going to um, echo yours a little bit. I'm going to choose the woman as well. Uh, the moment that really, you know, hammers home that Brad Dourif would be perfect for this role <laughs> is when the boss shows up and the woman has to play mom. And it's this like double entendre role where she's she's evil and sinister and she's still oh. she's still portraying that. Yes. But there's there's um she's playing a wholesome person and there's yes. that, like a mother would know and i i oh. think brad Dourif is so good at being scary and sweet simultaneously that i think that that would be that would be his time to shine
2: that's so smart i actually forgot about that scene so um well done well done okay and bradford who do you have for the brad Dourif award on this film
0: I would cast Brad Dourif as the woman in a heartbeat. I mean, I can just immediately picture it in that long black dress and the peplum and the corset with his long, stringy, greasy hair. I mean, it's a it's a shoe in, of course. And I mean, to say nothing of uh, when he would get to play the burned face woman.
2: Now, Bradford, you did give the woman, the Michael Myers award as well. So you're going with both Michael Myers and Brad Dourif. Just to understand, you're talking about the woman throughout the film. You're not just talking about the woman in one particular part, as I was just talking about when she's sitting down in the hallway with her cigarette and the film is kind of glitching and twitching.
0: No, I could see her throughout. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're given a double award to the I woman. I am. But Eric, I mean, to be fair, at the end of the day, There are basically two roles in this film. Yes. Yes. Good point. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this of course is the part of the podcast where we give you our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and everything we've seen about this film. Kim, would you like to go first and give us a letter grade for Inside?
1: Yeah, I'm going to give this film a solid A. Oof. It's wonderful from beginning to end, and I, I really enjoyed it. And having not seen it in a while, um, but having seen it before, everything that hit me the first time hit me all over again. So it really held up, and it is a very effective film.
0: All right. Uh, Mr. Winnick.
2: God, I am such a stick in the mud, you know? I feel like I've become such a disappointment to you.
0: Well, you're a churl and a bully. Uh, No, but please, disappoint me. Solid B. What do you need to give a movie a fucking A, Eric? I don't
2: know, but I ain't seen it yet. Can we also be clear that we have a lot of films to see and- I liked this film. You're not limited,
0: Eric. You could give everything an A.
2: I would never do that. I did like this film, and a B is a good grade. It's just there were some things that sort of, for me, just it didn't didn't quite work, and so I can't I can't
0: get it past the B. I'm sorry. Right, let's just see how we grade you, Mr. Wing, because <laughs> I, I will I, I not figure it, as much. it on a curve. But that's great, you know. I mean, y- your horizons are being broadened. I think maybe we we might revisit at the end of the semester. Uh, however, um, yeah, I'm I'm firmly in camp Kim. I'm um, yeah. given this DNA, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, if you did, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, have a listening party, bring some snacks. So delicious. And hey, maybe even subscribe.
2: Be sure to check out all 13 hours of season one if you haven't already.
0: Because, I mean, who doesn't have 13 hours of free time? Uh, But also, be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account in our Facebook group, or on our website, ScareYouPod.com. That's Scare, the letter U, and pod.com.
2: Thanks again to our guest, Kim, Kimberly, Kimmy, Elizabeth. Uh, Kim, if people want to find you online, where can they do so?
1: Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I had so much fun. Um, if they want to find me, I am at Nightmare on Film Street. That's my podcast. Uh, and you can find us at NOFSPodcast.com. Uh, or at NOFS Podcast on Twitter or at Nightmare on Film Street on Instagram.
2: And Bradford, where can they find you?
0: They can find me at www.bradfordloric.com. Uh,
2: you can find me on Letterboxd or Instagram at EA Winnick. Uh, I am no longer giving out my Twitter handle because uh, I, I no longer enjoy Twitter.
0: Uh, Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser and Sir Anthony Hopkins, as well as by Sophia Lillis, Wyatt Olaf, and Dave Thune from the cast of the criminally short-lived Netflix miniseries, I Am Not Okay With This. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth, mixed by us into a seamless gravy boat of sonic gruel.
2: Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time within the withered walls of the Internet's institution of lower learning. Scare You. Stay out of trouble, people.
0: And don't run with scissors!